As we have through all of our Advent, we will be um, per participating in an Advent liturgy. Um, uh, as we have in every, uh, over the last three weeks, we will be uh, doing a call and response. I will be reading out what is labeled as presider, and together we will respond with that which is labeled under congregation. In this Advent season of waiting on the Lord, we trust in the Lord's goodness. We rely on his mercy. We find shelter in his steadfast love. In this Advent season of waiting on the Lord, we walk in the Lord's way. We follow his example of love. We keep our covenant promises. In this Advent season of waiting, Lord, forget our sins. Remember your love. Remember each one of us. Remember your people everywhere. In this Advent season of waiting, Lord, we wait for your salvation. We wait for your leading. We wait for your coming. You may be seated. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. We'll be reading from the ESV version, which may differ from the uh, Bibles that are in the pews in front of you. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his, mother, uh, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you bow with me in prayer again? God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to gather together, uh, to worship together, because we don't worship an empty God, Lord, but we worship a God who came and who is present with us. And so as we look into your word this morning, we pray that your presence in us would be made apparent to us, that we would hear from you, that you would be speaking into our minds and into our hearts, that we might know you and that we might be transformed because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
let earth receive her king. We just sang this song, and as Bonan mentioned earlier, this song is one of the most famous Christmas carols in the world. The lyrics were written in the early 1700s by a man named Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a prolific hymn writer. We still sing many of his songs today, although sometimes uh, modern praise music has shifted some of the melodies a little bit. Some of the lyrics we still sing are, When I survey the wondrous cross, or alas, and did my Savior bleed. He, is a, he was a really prolific hymn writer. He wrote a lot of famous hymns, and he really touched the hearts of many. But did you know that when it came to joy to the world, when Isaac Watts wrote this song, when he first wrote it, it wasn't actually a song. And it also wasn't even really about Christmas, per se. Because when Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World, he wrote it as a poem. It was a poem inside of a book of poems that he published about the Psalms. And Joy to the World to Isaac Watts was actually his Christological interpretation of Psalm 98. By Christological, I mean that Isaac Watts was reading Psalm 98, and what came out in Joy to the World was his understanding of Psalm 98 in light of what he knew that Jesus did when he came to this earth. And so for over 100 years, Joy to the World was just a poem. Until 1848, when a man named Lowell Mason decided to set those words to music. And when Lowell Mason published those words, that song, he published it around Christmas time. And so because he published it around Christmas time, it became a song that people started to associate with Christmas. And so for the last over 170 years, we've been singing joy to the world only during Christmas, even though Isaac Watts intended it to describe you know, the great work of God in salvation. But you know, it's really appropriate that we do sing joy to the world during Christmas. Because the theme of joy to the world is the theme of what we celebrate during the Christmas season. The theme of joy to the world is the Lord is come. God's presence has come into this world, has invaded into this world. God has come to dwell in his creation. And that theme is the same theme that we read today in our text in Simeon's song. Now, we don't actually know, unlike Isaac Watts, we don't know a whole lot about Simeon. Some people think Simeon, maybe, maybe he was a priest because he was hanging out in the temple. Or maybe he was this great teacher of the time. There's some, someone who actually thinks that Simeon might have been the president of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council at that time. But all these conjectures are totally unsubstantiated because there really isn't a lot written about Simeon outside of what we see in Luke chapter 2. So all we really know about Simeon is that Simeon, as we read earlier, as, as, as Terry read earlier, Simeon was righteous and he was devout. But perhaps most importantly, what's emphasized three times in our text is that the Holy Spirit was with Simeon. In verses 25 through 27, it says, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. The Holy Spirit was speaking to Simeon. The Holy Spirit was guiding Simeon, leading Simeon. And so what this tells us is that Simeon's song has some authority to it. Because while he composed the words, those words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those words were the Holy Spirit God speaking through him, just as with the rest of the Bible. 
And what we learn from Simeon's song, if you don't mind me changing some words around, is joy to the world. The Lord is come for those who receive their king. So we'll first focus on both the core of joy to the world in Simeon's song, the idea that God's presence in Jesus has come to the world. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for a long time, I always asked the question, I always wondered, why is it that we seem to emphasize Christmas more than Easter? I mean, when I was growing up in Texas, we got two weeks of vacation for school for Christmas, unlike you guys here who only get one. We got two whole weeks. When it came to Easter, we got nothing. I actually just looked up the academic calendar and, uh, for schools in, around Texas, and they do get Good Friday off now, but they only get Good Friday if there was no snow day prior to Good Friday. If there was a snow day, then they don't get Good Friday. And even in the church, we seem to emphasize Christmas more. We're now celebrating the Advent season, the Advent season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the entire month of December. When it comes to Easter, usually we start those celebrations the week before, right, around Palm Sunday maybe. So we spend four weeks on Christmas and one week on Easter. And this, even though as evangelicals, we, we emphasize the cross, right? We believe that Jesus had to die so that we could be justified. The cross is central to our understanding of our salvation, that Jesus' death justified us, made us righteous, made us holy, so that we could be saved. So why is it that we seem to emphasize Christmas over Easter? Maybe I'm the only one with this question, but it, it's, it's a question that's always bugged me. And we see the answer to that question in Simeon's song. Let's take a look. In Luke chapter 2, we read, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. So, what we see in Simeon's song is that what is central about the idea of salvation, God's salvation for us, is the presence of God entering into this world. What's central to the idea of salvation, what's core to understanding what God's salvation means, is God's salvation is all about God coming to dwell here with his people. The cross, sure, the cross is still important because we need to be justified. We need to be righteous and holy to be in relationship with God. But the core message of God's salvation is that the Lord is come, that Jesus has come, that God has made his dwelling amongst his people. And we see this in the verses that we just read because how Simeon defines salvation is through the words light and glory. Light and and glory. Two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about how light represents God's presence coming into the world. We pictured a dark room and the presence of God as a light coming in and shining and making, making known what was in darkness before that. Well, what we find throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, are these images of light and glory representing God dwelling with his people this promise that God would dwell with his people. For example, let's take a look at Isaiah 60, the first few verses. 
And actually, as I put it up there, why don't we all read it together? And as we read it, let's consider the fact that even though Isaiah 60 is, is describing a state in eternity in the future, what Isaiah 60 is describing is something that has already begun to happen because Jesus has already come, because God has already come into this world and taken on flesh and come to be with his people. And so, though not totally fulfilled, Isaiah 60 has already begun its fulfillment in us and his people. So let's read together. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And now let's skip ahead a, a little bit in Isaiah 60 to verse 19. Let's read. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. This is the core message of Christmas. God has come to dwell with humanity. But what if we don't feel like God is present? What if it doesn't seem like God is near? What if viscerally it seems like God is far from us, away from us, detached from who we are, detached from this world? How do we experience God's presence? How do we grow in knowing God's presence? Well, the first way we experience God's presence is by coming to faith, is by believing and trusting that Jesus came into this world, that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be declared righteous, so that our sins could be atoned for, so that, uh, so that God's wrath could be satisfied, and that Jesus was raised from the dead. We grow and experience the presence of God by believing and trusting that Jesus reigns over all, including ourselves. And we continue to grow and experience God's presence by daily believing, daily trusting, daily knowing that God is with us, that all those truths that we believed at the beginning are still true today. We daily acknowledge God's reign over us when we pray, we daily acknowledge God's reign over us when we read his word and seek to hear from him. We daily acknowledge God's reign over us when we remember that God is with us, even when this, in this broken world, we don't feel like he is there. Even in, in our brokenness, when we feel depressed or when we feel lonely, we, we experience God's presence when we, by faith, remember that God has promised it to us and that God is with us. And we daily experience God's presence when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of service to the God in whom we trust. When we serve, when we seek to give ourselves up to God, that is when we experience God the most. 
when we take steps of faith, that is when we viscerally feel that he is with us and we see how he acts and works in our life. Now, this isn't to say that Jesus' death on the cross isn't important, right? Because he did have to die. He did have to die so that we could be declared righteous. He did have to die so that we could be holy because we need to be, seen, we need to be holy and righteous to be in relationship with the holy and righteous God. But the point of Simeon's song is that the cross is just a part of God's salvation. It's, it's the means of God's salvation by which God's salvation can happen. Because God's salvation, ultimately, the core of it is God coming to dwell with his people. God being with us. The Holy Spirit being with us. Just as it was upon Simeon. Being upon us, speaking to us, and leading us. Because we declare that the Lord is come, just as Isaac Watts declared. The Lord is come, and the Lord has come to us personally. And so we have peace because the Lord has come. Because when we recognize that God's presence is with us, we have the confidence and the peace of mind and the peace of heart to know that God is in control. We have joy, the words behind me and the words that we sang earlier, because God is dwelling with us. But the gospel doesn't just stop with us. If our perspective is just limited to us, then we can't fully grasp the entirety of the gospel's significance. If we, when, we look, when we think about the presence of God, if all we're thinking about with respect to the presence of God is the presence of God in us, then we have an incomplete picture of what God's salvation means. We have an incomplete picture of what the presence of God looks like and we can't actually fully experience the presence of God. It was easy during Jesus' time for Israel to think that God was coming to save them, that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the foreign powers. And as we've discussed in the past, Israel for a long time had been under, for centuries had been under foreign uh, rule, right? The, per the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... And they were looking to this day when the Messiah would come and deliver them from these pagan rulers. They were looking for the day when God would reestablish the throne of David, when Israel could go back to the glory days of King David and King Solomon. But maybe what they missed was the fact that God's salvation that he promised in the Old Testament wasn't just for Israel. God's salvation that he promised in the Old Testament, all the way from the beginning in Genesis, all the way through to the prophets, was intended to be for all peoples. That the Lord has come, not just to Israel, but the Lord has come to all peoples, both Gentiles and Jewish. In 2013, Emily and I, my wife, we took a trip to Paris to celebrate our 10th anniversary. It was... 2013, we're a little past that now. <laughs> it was the first trip, though, that we actually took after we had our kids that was just the two of us. And so that was a pretty big event for us. It was pretty, pretty major, and, and we had a great time. But one of the museums we visited in Paris was called the Musée de l'Orangerie. Any of you guys ever heard of this place? All right, <laughs> two people, Mo and Sarah. All right, so the, the Musée de l'Orangerie. It's actually a really small museum. It's not too far from the Louvre Museum, which is the big one with uh, you know, the Mona Lisa and all that stuff. 
But what's cool in this museum is they have eight giant murals that Claude Monet painted. Claude Monet was an Impressionist painter, and they have these huge murals that you can look at. Now, Monet was an Impressionist painter. And if you guys have seen any Impressionist art, you'll know that if you stand close to those paintings, all you really see are these really clear brush strokes, right? And you see you know, exactly where the painter was painting up close. But when you're up close, even though you see the detail of his strokes, it's hard to have a good picture of what the whole painting is about. And so it's not until you take a step back and see the giant mural as a whole that you see what Monet was painting. And you know, it's kind of amazing because you know, this artist, the artist is painting stroke at a time in detail, and somehow in his mind, he has this vision, this big picture in view. And so for us to fully enjoy it, we have to take a step back and see the big picture. In the same way, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the presence of God, if the presence of God in us is just limited to us, we can't fully appreciate and grasp and experience what it means that God has come to dwell among his people. Because you see, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we believe in, the good news that God has come to make his dwelling amongst man, it's not just American good news. It's not just Jewish good news. It's not just Greek good news. It's good news to all peoples and all the world. And if we read the Bible, we see that this promise of salvation, this theme of what God's salvation means, of God dwelling amongst his peoples, is a, is a theme that applies to the whole world from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the end of the Bible in Revelation. We see it in the beginning of the Bible because God created the whole world. And he told Adam and Eve to, to, sub, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the whole world, not just Israel, not just where we are individually. And we see it in Revelation, where there's this vision of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping before the throne of God, serving God in God's presence. This theme of God's presence amongst all peoples, this theme that the Lord has come to all people. And so we have to ask, what is, as we consider this idea of the good news of God's salvation and his presence, what is our perspective? What is our understanding about the presence of God? When we think about the presence of God, do we understand it as just the presence of God in ourselves individually? Do we understand it as just the presence of God in our church in Crossbridge? Do we understand it as God's presence in Boston or the U.S.? Because the thing is, when God dwells in us, he gives us a vi his vision for what he desires, his vision of dwelling amongst all peoples. And so if our vision is restricted just to Boston or Crossbridge or to us individually, we miss the point. We can't fully experience and know what it means that God has come to dwell with us. And so we proclaim that the Lord has come, but we proclaim that the Lord has come to all peoples, and that in order for us to fully experience the presence of God, God is calling us to become engaged 
with not just ourselves, but to come, become engaged with the world. Because when we see the presence of God in the richness and diversity of all the different cultures and peoples that God has created around the world, that is when we fully understand and experience the presence of God and can give glory to God. And so we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the song continues with, Let earth receive her king. But the truth is, this, ver this lyric, let earth receive her king, it's a wish, it's a hope, but it's not always true. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ coming into the world can be offensive to the world. The gospel, as, it, as God comes into the world, what we find is people oppose God because God's values don't fit with the values of of a broken people. Let's take a look at, uh, continue to take a look at Simeon's song where we read in verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. When we, look, when we think about the gospel and when we think about how God's presence has come into the world and we think about how God's presence calls us to become engaged with the world, we should expect to face opposition. We face opposition today, but the truth is, first century Christians faced a lot of opposition too, right? Because in the first century, the gospel certainly was something that the first century Roman Empire in their culture couldn't accept. For example, Christians insisted on worshiping only the one true God. And for most Romans, they just couldn't understand why Christians couldn't also worship or <clears throat> be accepting of the worship of, of other, other people, or, sorry, of other gods. They couldn't understand why Christians were so intolerant that they couldn't worship the empire or the emperor. <coughs> Excuse me. Because you see, when it comes to, when it, for the first century Romans, when it came to the idea of worshiping other gods, being tolerant of these things, and worshiping the empire, to undermine those things was to undermine the very fabric of their society. Roman, Roman society was thought to be very structured. It was very important for the foundation to be there so that there could be order. You know, you saw this in Acts. They're always very worried about riots, right? Because there were, the Roman Empire was all about making sure that order was in place. And so for the Christians to say that they weren't going to worship the emperor, they weren't going to be tolerant of other people's gods, was for the, from, from the interpretation of first century Roman, Romans, it was an interpretation that the Christians were seeking to undermine society, were seeking to undermine the very nature, the very structure, the very order of the Roman emperor, empire. And so most first century Christians couldn't understand, or sorry, most first century Romans couldn't understand why Christians wouldn't worship the emperor. And who did the Christians worship? They worshipped a God. They worshipped a God who came to this world in Jesus and who died on the cross. Now sometimes, you know, we think of the cross as the symbol of Christ, right? We think of this cross as a symbol. And sometimes we forget about the scandal of what the cross really meant in the first century. The cross 
was an instrument of capital punishment. Pastor Jeff has already spoken previous weeks about how painful it was to die on the cross. Cicero, a Roman politician at the time, described crucifixion as the most cruel and hideous of tortures. But you know, besides just being an instrument of death, an instrument of pain, the cross was also an instrument of shame. Because when you got crucified, you were hung up on this wooden pole in a very public area. Today, when someone is, when someone is executed for, for, their, for their crimes, it's usually done in private, right? We, don't, we might hear about it in the news, but it's done in quiet. Crucifixion in the Roman times was something that was very public. It wasn't just pain. It was public humiliation. You didn't just die in private. You died so that the whole world could see your sin, what you had done wrong, your crimes against humanity, your crimes against the Roman Empire. And so the cross became a stumbling block for a lot of first century Christians because how could Christians worship someone who died in this worst way possible, not just bring punishment onto themselves, but bring shame to their entire family, bring shame to their, to, to their entire social structure because of the ways in which they were publicly humiliated and dying in such a public way. Celsus, a second century uh, per, uh, guy who was really opposed to Christians, publicly wrote how he wondered how anyone could worship a God who couldn't save himself from a death like crucifixion. Because in the end, when it comes to the idea of Jesus coming into this world and dwelling with us, Jesus dying so that God's presence can be with us, it's a disruptive message. It's a disruptive message whose values don't fit with, our, with the world's values. In 1995, Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen coined the term disruptive innovation. Now, he described disruptive, he described disruptive innovation as basically a technological advance or an idea that is so different from what exists currently that large companies don't see any value in it. But the reason why large companies don't see any value in it is because the value that it provides customers isn't a value that their core customers believe in, isn't a value that their core customers recognize. And so large companies will, don't feel like it's worth investing in those disruptive innovations because those disruptive innovations don't bring any money, don't bring any revenue into their companies if, if their core customers aren't going to buy into it. How many of you guys, for, so for example, how many of you guys have ever stepped foot inside of a blockbuster video? Anyone? Mostly over the age of 30. Maybe a couple people who are under the age of 30. But they don't really exist anymore. There's like one blockbuster video left in the entire world in Oregon. And the reason they don't exist anymore is because some number of years ago, 15 years ago, Netflix came along. And when Netflix came along, it's not that people at Blockbuster didn't see that there was value in Netflix. It's that the technologies or the proposals that Netflix was proposing didn't fit within the value system of the core customers of Blockbuster. Because why would you mail order a DVD when you could get that DVD instantaneously by just going down to your local store, right? Why wait three days when, you know, usually when you watch movies in those days, you, it was a Friday night, you were with some friends, you're like, hey, let's go watch a movie. Okay, let's go mail order a movie so that we can get in three days and watch it then. No, you wanted to watch it now. And so 
for Blockbuster's core customers, it didn't make sense. And streaming video, I don't know if you guys remember, but the internet was really slow. <laughs> and so for Blockbuster's core customers, why would I watch a video that's all blocky when I could get a pristine DVD that you know, looks super clear? I mean, this is before HD, right? So that looks really clear. And so the innovations that Netflix was proposing weren't innovations that Blockbuster could buy into because they didn't appeal to the values of Blockbuster's core customers. Netflix was disruptive. But those disruptive innovations eventually grow and they displace the existing technologies. And in the same way, God's salvation is disruptive into this world. It's disruptive because intuitively, because of our brokenness, we don't understand the value of God's presence in this world. We don't, the world doesn't understand what it means, and so they can't invest into it because it doesn't make sense. But ultimately, God's gospel, God's work of salvation will prevail. And so as we think about it, what are ways in which the gospel is a stumbling block to our culture? What are ways in which the values of the gospel are such that our culture doesn't see its worth or doesn't see its value? Maybe it's in where we define our identity. Because in the gospel, in God's salvation, our identity is defined by someone other than ourselves. Our identity is defined by God. As Christians, we're not defined in, in, in who we are necessarily. We're defined by the love that Jesus has for us. John, John, uh, the, the, the John who wrote the Gospel of John frequently refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And one thought is, he called himself that because he wasn't identified as John. He didn't see himself as John. He saw himself primarily as defined as the disciple who Jesus loved. But in our culture, who do we want to be identified as? We want to be identified in ourselves, through our work, maybe, maybe through our sexuality, maybe through our appearance, maybe in how others perceive us. How we define identity is a stumbling block to people in our culture. Or maybe it's related to the idea of how we like convenience in our culture, because the gospel is not convenient. Discipleship is not easy. Living in community with one another is hard. And yet, it's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to do difficult things for the sake of the gospel. We're called to do difficult things in order to love people. The values of the gospel and convenience uh, are, are at odds with the values in our culture of convenience in this smartphone age. Or maybe... Maybe the, the clash in values isn't related to our need to be in control of our lives. When we look back at Adam and Eve, there are some theologians who argue that Adam and Eve's original sin was not in their desire to have the knowledge of good and evil. Because is it really so bad to desire the knowledge of good and evil? Some theologians argue that Adam and Eve's original sin was in their desire to take control over their own lives. Their desire to basically say, I know how to get that knowledge of good and evil better than God does. 
to, believe, to want to become masters of their own lives, to define, to think that they knew better for themselves than God knew for them. And so maybe the clash in culture is our inability to let go of our control over our lives. Maybe the clash is our inability to submit to the authority of Jesus, to submit to the reign of Jesus, to be willing to take steps of faith and trusting that God is in control rather than thinking that we have control ourselves. And to be honest, if our culture meshes too perfectly with God's worldview, our perception of God's worldview, if we think that there isn't something that, that is different between our culture and God's culture, then we have to start wondering whether our understanding of God's culture isn't quite right. Because in the end, we are broken people. In the end, even in our culture, there is brokenness. God's, God's worldview isn't an American worldview. It's not a Jewish worldview. It's not a Chinese worldview. It's not a Japanese worldview. God's worldview is going to challenge us at, in, in different junctures. And we have to be willing to submit to that worldview and to submit to those challenges. <clears throat> because in the end, not all will receive their king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But not all receive their king because the value systems between God's presence is at odds with the value system, our value systems. But yet we have hope. We have hope because we believe the good news of God's salvation, that God has come into this world. And so as we seek to bring God's presence to the rest of the world, we believe that God's presence is in us and with us and can sustain us. There's a song, a famous hymn called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. It's pretty well known, right? I mean, it used to be sung all the time. You know, preachers would give an altar call and they play, I have decided to follow Jesus, you know, as in the background to, to illustrate this idea of making this decision of faith to follow Jesus. But you know, that actually wasn't the context of how that song was written. Anyone know the story behind I have decided to follow Jesus? A couple of you guys, all right, so this will be, this won't be new to you. But the song actually isn't even Western, it's not even American. The song was written by an Indian Christian. And so the story goes, the, the, the Indian Christian who wrote it based it on, the, the story goes, this, the last words of this other Indian Christian. And basically this other Indian Christian lived in Assam state in eastern India, and he was brought before the tribal chief. And the tribal chief basically told him to give up his faith. And this Indian Christian's response was, I have decided to follow Jesus. And the tribal chief threatened to kill his wife and children. And the man still said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And so even as the man was killing, or the tribal chief was killing the man's family, he said, though no one join me, still I will follow. And as the man himself was being put to death, he is, it said that he said, the world behind me, the cross before me. The song isn't a story about conversion. The song is a story about a man who knew God so closely 
a man who knew the presence of God so richly, a man for whom the idea that God has come to dwell with his people was a reality, a reality so that when he faced opposition, he could continue, a reality so that when others stumbled over the truth that he found, the truth that he believed in, he could persevere. It was a reality that, w- that was ingrained in him so that when life threw curveballs at him, even to the point of his life being threatened, he could continue to say day by day, hour by hour, or for him, even second by second, I have decided to follow Jesus. I insist that Jesus is real. I insist to remember that God's presence is with me and that God's presence with me will enable me to continue until the end. Because Christmas, the message of the good news is joy to the world. The Lord has come for those who receive the King.